Luke chapter 5 this morning. I want to begin reading in verse number 17. As the Bible says, And it came to pass on a certain day, as he was teaching, that being Jesus, that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And behold, men brought in a bed a man which was taken with a palsy. And they sought uh, means to bring him in and to lay him before the Lord. Uh, The palsy being a sort of paralytic condition. This man was essentially a cripple. And he was needing the assistance of his friends to bring him to the Lord. Man, everybody needs friends like that. Friends who will bring them to the Lord, whether that be in a literal sense or in a prayerful sense. We all need people in our lives who will make sure they are bringing us before the Lord. Verse number 19, the Bible says, And when they could not find by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop and let him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith... He said unto them, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answering said unto them, What reason ye in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise up and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins. He said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise and take up thy couch and go into thine house. And immediately he rose up before them and took up that whereon he lay. And he departed to his own house glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. Let's pray. Father, we ask today that you would help us understand the intricacies of this passage. Help us to be aware of of what is obvious. But Lord, also make us aware of things that are not so obvious in this passage. Help us not to see only the, the themes that are clear and present, but also those that I believe are more vital and important. Lord, help us today as your word guides us. And Lord, may we be led of the Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, if we were to bring a, a child from the children's church into this auditorium, at the end of service, and were to say that little Miss Susie or or little brother Johnny accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior today, I have no doubt in my mind that around the auditorium, most of us would say, Amen. It would be a wonderful thing today if somebody back in our children's church or somebody at our Spanish church or even somebody in our auditorium this morning received Christ as their Lord and Savior. That would make my day. But if we were to bring somebody off our prayer list, perhaps somebody who's been dealing with a terminal illness, somebody who's been sick with cancer for some time, and 
and we've been praying for them and asking the Lord to heal them, if we were to bring that same person in here and we were to put them on the front row opposite of Johnny or Susie, and we were to say, today I've got great news for you. The doctors have done all the tests that they can do, all the scans and all the procedures have been done, and they said it was hopeless and they thought that there was no way out. But I am thankful that through the prayers of God's people, God has heard our cry and He has healed our friend today. The doctors can't explain it, but he is cancer-free. I think, within just my experience of our church, most of us would say with a resounding, Amen! We'd all be excited about that. My fear, though, is that we would be disproportionately excited about the cancer. I think it's natural because we all view cancer or these sicknesses or these health conditions as the great enemy of our life. But in truth, the great enemy of our soul is our sinful condition. And it never cost Jesus a single thing to raise someone up from a cripple bed. Or to even bring somebody back from the dead. And never cost him a thing to heal a leper or, or, or to make the blinded eye to see. But it cost Jesus everything to save little Johnny and Susie. If I take you to the edge of the Grand Canyon, many of you may have been there before. I had the opportunity to go just a single time. But I even today remember the overwhelming uh, uh, attitude and just uh, nature of that moment. Uh, seeing these giant trees and seeing these beautiful deer all took a back seat to the very moment I stepped over the edge and I saw what in my opinion was one of the more beautiful natural landscapes I've ever seen in my life. And it was so impressive and so deep and so wide. I had never seen anything like it and no picture I had ever seen of it ever did it justice. The deep reds of that canyon and the depth that it is. And, and I was just so overwhelmed by that moment. But if I were to take you this morning to that place where I looked out into the great Grand Canyon and I were to say to you, what do you think about that? I have no doubt in my mind, not a single person in this room this morning would say, wow, that's a big river down there. Because when you look at the Grand Canyon, to look at the river would be a great mistake. Did you know that if we took every single river on the face of the planet and all the water that is in every single one of them and put it all in the Grand Canyon, it would only fill it up halfway? Do you know that all the world's population could fit into the Grand Canyon and there'd still be room? To look at the river and miss the depth of the canyon would be a horrible, horrible mistake. We come to a passage like this today and I'm afraid that we hear of the man born of four. I'm afraid that we hear of this paralytic man and how he's called from his bed. I'm afraid we look at the great miracle or even perhaps, and this is a good thing, but it is not the main thing, the the faith of his friends and the willingness to get him to Jesus no matter the cost. I'm afraid we look at the rivers in the passage and miss the great Grand Canyon of it all. And that is that Jesus Christ forgives sinful Men. Today I want to take a look at this passage and I want you to see just some wonderful attributes about this passage and about the forgiveness of our Lord today. Number one, I want you to see, first of all, an unseen problem in the passage. Now, the author of our particular text is Dr. Luke. He's the physician. 
Now, there were fishermen involved in the uh, uh, disciples, and there were tax collectors, but Luke had a profession of being a physician. He was a doctor. And as he came to this passage, he wrote it intentionally and said in verse 17, And it came to pass on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. Man, these doctors of the law and these Pharisees had come a long way to listen to Jesus teach in this place. And listen what Dr. Luke says. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. At this time in Jesus' ministry, His fame has began to spread. So far it had been rather suppressed, and He's even instructed those that have been healed by Him to keep it on the down low. But now Jesus' fame is starting to spread abroad, and it is for that reason that these doctors of the law and these Pharisees have traveled to this place on this day to listen to the lessons taught by Jesus. But what's odd is Dr. Luke does not immediately introduce us to the main character of the story because I don't believe he is the main character of the story. The man born of four, the one that we recall this passage about, we think of that in this moment. But here Luke introduces us to the Pharisees and the doctors of the law, that is the scribes. He introduces us to them and he says this phrase, the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Not the man born of four, but the doctors, the Pharisees. Imagine if you were on your bed at the hospital, waiting intently for the doctor to come into your room. And the doctor was taking his time as they always do. You know, they make their rounds. I think making their rounds is uh, another way of saying we've got to play the back nine on the golf course. Uh, But, you know, they, they make their rounds and they finally make their way to your room and they look at their chart and they tell you all your information. You wait there anxiously with twiddling thumbs, waiting to hear the diagnosis and potentially the prognosis. And you're thinking, well, I hope the doctor shows up with some good news. I want you to imagine if that doctor came into your room and there you've been waiting intently on his message. He looks at you and he says, as for you, we're not entirely sure what's going on. And then he turns to your loved one right beside your bed and he looks at them and says, but I'm telling you, you're going to be just fine. Maybe you would be laying there and you'd say to yourself, we're not here for them. I'm the one with all the bracelets. I'm the one that's branded like a cow in this place. I'm the one with the tubes hanging out of me. I'm the one with the little red button that calls the nurse. I'm the one that controls the TV in this room. When you want the doctor to come in, you don't want the doctor to diagnose your loved ones. You want the doctor to diagnose you. Yet our doctor in our passage has diagnosed those around the sick man and he says the power of the Lord was present to heal them. What we find is they were sick. Now this is uh, helpful for us to understand that Luke tells us about an available power. What does he say? The power of the Lord was present to heal them. It could be said that wherever Jesus is, the power of the Lord is present to heal. Jesus is all-powerful, so Jesus is never out of resources, He's never out of supply. But as He comes to this place, Luke makes particular note that the power of the Lord was present on this day, in this place, for 
these people. The power of Jesus was always available for them, but it's important you understand the power of Jesus, or, or, or the presence of Jesus, was not always available for people. Jesus was not always available. And Jesus was not always in this place, in this town. So we see not only an available power, but we see an abating presence. It's interesting that in our verse number 17, Luke says, And it came to pass on a certain day. Meaning, this day would pass. And there would be another day tomorrow, but the, the circumstances and the settings of tomorrow would not be the same as they are today. It's very likely that this is the last time in all of world history that these people were assembled together to hear the message of Jesus. The power of Jesus is present to heal, but the presence of Jesus will not always be here. I hear people talk about how, well, preacher, I'm going to get right with the Lord tomorrow. I'm going to live for God when the kids are gone and out of the house. I know that if I were to die at this moment, I'd be on my way to hell. But, but I understand that I've got things going on. I've got big plans. So one day I'll get right with the Lord. Friend, that is such a foolish way to live your life. You do not know a single thing about what's going to happen tomorrow. Oh, you, your Google calendar does not arrest God's attention. I promise you. God is not up there adjusting His plans according to what your eye calendar says. What we have to understand is, man's life is but a vapor. It appeareth a little time, and then it vanishes away. Uh, it, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So when the power of Jesus is present to heal, you would do well to, uh, to, to submit yourself to the power of Jesus. His power will not always be present. His call may not always be as ev- evident in your life. So there's an available power. And there's an abating presence. But I want you to see, note, uh, finally and, and thirdly, there's an absent plea. Here we do not study what is in the passage, but is what, what is not in the passage. We see, we see that the power was present. And the people were present. But you know what's missing? The plea for God to heal them. You know the reason more miracles weren't performed on this day? Because more people didn't ask for miracles. You know the reason why more people didn't get gloriously born again on this day? Because more people didn't ask for it. God's power was present. And the people were there and, and Jesus was ready, but nobody asked for it. I can't assign to these men all negative uh, attitudes. I, 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 would, I would assume that many of them came to be critical of the teaching of Jesus. Maybe some of them thought in their minds, well, I've got to hear what this man has to say, and we'll try to ask him questions that lead him down rabbit holes that none of us have been able to discuss our way out of. And so they're trying to trap Jesus in His words. But I wonder if maybe there's not a genuine-hearted Pharisee here. Maybe a man like Nicodemus who came genuinely seeking answers. I wonder if maybe in this crowd, this day, there's not a man here hearing the Word of God and seeing the miracle power of Jesus. Yet in this day, he went away grieved because he did not get healed. These men had deceived themselves. Doctors don't need physicians. Men of the law don't need to be forgiven. These doctors were sick, terminally ill to their very core, 
with sin nature. And only the forgiveness of Jesus would be able to restore them and make them whole again. But there's an overwhelming absent plea. You know what the Bible says? It says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There has never yet been a person in world history that has ever called upon Jesus to save their soul. And Jesus said, you know what? You're not the kind I'm looking for. There's never been a person that came to Jesus and said, Jesus, I'm at the end of my rope. I can't save myself. I've worked my way and I've tried to do good, but I know that I'm a sinner lost and undone before you. Dear Jesus, would you save me? And Jesus said, you know what? When I said the world, I didn't mean you. But there has to be a request. And there has to be a moment of faith where your faith is placed into the forgiveness of Jesus. We cannot look at these men and yet leave not heartbroken at the fact that they never asked for healing. And most of them probably never got healed. There's an unseen problem in the passage, but I want you to see secondly an unconvinced party. These are those men I was describing to you that that maybe came with a critical spirit towards Jesus. The Bible says in verse 21, And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? The problem in their minds was, Who as a man can settle uh, accounts for God? More than that, more than just the theological ramifications of it, who can settle a matter for another individual? Meaning, who are you to settle God's business? Who are you to say that debts can be forgiven? Who are you that sins can be forgiven? Jesus, in this case, is uniquely and particularly qualified for this role. You see, Jesus served as an ambassador He came to this world, not of His own volition, by the way. He was sent by the Father. He was, in the truest sense, an ambassador to you and to me. Sent by the Father to this world. In fact, Jesus said on many occasions, and I'll just mention to you one, Jesus said, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. Jesus wasn't speaking on His own accord. He was speaking by, uh, in submission to the Father's will. So He served as a representative, as, a, as an ambassador from God to men. But He also spoke as a man having authority. He was not only an ambassador, but Jesus claimed to have authority. In verse number 24, this is the heat of the debate. Uh, Jesus says, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins. He saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise and take up thy couch and go into thine house. That word power there is interesting. It's unique because this is a different word as is mentioned earlier in the passage. In verse 17, the verse says, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. That word is the traditional word we know of as dunamis. It speaks of explosive power. Uh, uh, We might say, wow, that was a powerful firework. Or uh, a thunder might uh, uh, clash. And we might say, wow, that was some powerful thunder. That's what that word means. The power, the effectual working of God was present to heal them. But this power is different. It's a different word altogether. It means authority. 
one with authority. It's not speaking of thunderclapping power, but it's speaking of one who has the legal right to, in this case, establish and settle affairs on behalf of another. Jesus had all power. Not the storm-clapping, earth-shaking power to move. He had that, but that's not what he's speaking of here. He's speaking of the authority and legal right to do so. You and I have in our American culture, in our judicial systems, what is called power of attorney. And you can sign an authorized letter. And when I sign an authorized letter saying that my father has power of attorney, what I am doing is I am giving to him the legal right to settle affairs on my behalf. He is acting in my place in that situation. So he is power of attorney. He has power of attorney. He is essentially acting on my behalf. Jesus is claiming the legal right, the power of attorney, to establish and settle affairs on the Father's behalf. He's not only an ambassador, not only does he have the authority, but he himself is the atonement. Somebody says... Who can forgive sins? Jesus says, I was up in heaven when we decided what the settled price would be. I I was there with a father when he said, well, in Adam all shall die. Even as the second Adam in Christ, all shall be made alive. Jesus, it will be your life for theirs. Jesus, your perfect sinless life for their sinful and wicked life. Jesus now advocating on behalf of the Father. They look at Him and say, who can forgive sins? He says, I don't know the guy that's going to pay the debt. I've asked three, uh, two men to help me this morning. Brother Charlie, Brother Brian, if you'll come up here. I want to help you understand all three of these aspects together. I brought from my mom's purse this morning a $50 bill, okay? Uh, no, I'm just kidding, Mom. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> she, she says, I don't carry 50s. I'm all about them Benjamins. You know, uh, uh, all right, Brother Brian, if you'll come over here, if you'll stand with me here. I, I want to illustrate these three aspects of Jesus' right to forgive. In fact, if you look through all the Scripture, there are many ways to prove the deity of Christ. John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Bible is not evasive on the deity of Christ. Jesus Christ is God. He is the everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. He is Almighty God. He is God. And so in this passage, we see another proof of that deity. The question is rightly asked, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now Jesus shows them in three ways how He can. Number one, He is sent by the Father. He is the ambassador. So, I want you to imagine in a world... Well, we'll do it like this, because Brother Charlie probably does owe me some money, so maybe he'll hit the altar after this. All right. Uh, I want you to imagine that I owe Brother Charlie money. Okay, that's probably more accurate to the way we live our lives. I owe Brother Charlie money. Now, I've got a message to get to, to Brother Charlie, and that is, Hey, Brian, I get paid on Friday... 
Can you go tell Charlie that I'll pay him on Friday? Can you do that for me? Yes, sir. Okay, so what I would be doing in this sense is asking Brian to serve as an ambassador for me. So Brian would carry the message over here, and Brian, you just tell Charlie exactly what I told you. Don't change it at all. This is what I told you to tell him. Okay, go. He gets paid on Friday, he'll pay you on Friday. All right, there we go. Everybody understand that? Brian, in this sense, serves as my ambassador to tell Charlie when the money's coming. All right, come back over here, Brian. Now... Brian, I'm going to make my power of attorney, my legal authority, and matters on my behalf. So, Brian, I want you to imagine that you are settling my affairs. So, in this sense, you can go negotiate with Charlie. You can, you know, try to get him down. You can try to, you know, hey, Charlie, you said he'll buy you a hot dog from QT. Is that about $50 worth to you? You're then acting on my behalf, okay? I'm out of town. I'm on a long trip. By the way, how many of y'all recall the parable of the unjust steward? Where the unjust steward, we could get into his actions and the meanings of the parable later. But do you remember that the unjust steward went to all of those people that owed his master money? He said, how many barrels of oil, or how many measures of oil do you owe my master? He says, I think it's a hundred or so. Okay, why don't you sit down real quick and write fifty? And then he goes to another guy and says, How many measures of wheat do you owe my master? I think it's about 100 or so. Okay, why don't you write down four score, meaning 80. Uh, He is settling matters on behalf of his master. That's what Brian would be doing. So Brian, I give you the legal right to act on my behalf. Okay, so what this would look like. Brian now comes over to Charlie and a long discussion ensues and we've settled now for a QT hot dog and a big drink from QT and Charlie comes out like a bandit. All right. Come back. Now, now, this is the third way in which Jesus... So we've covered Jesus was our ambassador. Jesus had the authority from God as God to serve as this mediator. But now, this money is not mine. In this aspect, this money is Brian's. And I come to Brian as a good friend. I've entrusted him with many things. Fifty of them, to be exact. <laughs> and I come to you, Brian, and I say, Brian... I owe Charlie some money, but I don't have the money to pay it. Hard times, you know, Joe Biden stopped sending me money. Uh, You know, things have gotten tough, and I owe him 50 bucks. What do you think we could do about that? Now, in this situation, Brian would say, well, we're such good friends, and we go back so far. I happen to have $50. Burleson Police Department pays well these days. (laughs) He says, I have $50. How about I just pay that debt for you? I say, Brian, that sounds like a good idea. So in this case, Brian serves as the atonement, the payment for that debt that I owe. So Brian, no, I don't trust Charlie with that. All right, y'all get the illustration. Thanks, guys. Y'all can have a seat. So in three different ways, Jesus, and probably many, many more than that, but Jesus serves... As the perfect one to answer this question, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus says, well, I am just the guy to answer that. He says, I was sent from the Father to forgive sins. And Jesus came, those that be whole need not a physician, but those that are sick. Jesus came for sinners. Uh, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. 
His whole purpose in coming was to be the Lamb that taketh away the sins of the world. So Jesus came as an ambassador from God, but Jesus came as God, having the authority to forgive sins. He says, "Uh, My Father's given me the power, the authority, the legal right to forgive sins, but it's not going to be just because I wish it or I want it. He says, I'm going to earn it. And I'm going to pay the debt that you owed. And I'm going to hang upon the cross of Calvary. And I will be the payment for your sins. I am the atoning sacrifice for you. Jesus served in every way as the perfect one to answer this question. And the greater question that we see threaded throughout the Bible is, who will be the atonement for our sins? Jesus was the only one worthy. And Jesus was the only one that was able to be the the payment for our sins. We see not only an unseen problem, we see secondly an unconvinced party. But thirdly, and what we focus on primarily in the passage is the undeniable pardon. Verse 20, And when he saw their faith, meaning the men who brought the the paralytic uh, man, And the paralytic man himself, I believe. When he saw their faith, he said unto him, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. In verse 24, after being questioned, Who can forgive sins? But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy couch, and go into thine house. And what you've got to understand here is, immediately the man stands up. This miracle is performed not as uh, the highlight. This is not the, uh, the, 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 the uh, grand finale of the, parable, uh, of the passage. This is not the be-all, end-all of it. This serves to expose a greater theological truth. He says, my miracle is performed to validate my message. The power of my word is being uh, authenticated and certified by the power of this work. This miracle is not the greater thought in this story. The man standing up, though unique and though wonderful, is not the greatest event that takes place. It is the the verses that precede that where Jesus forgives the man's sins. And then everybody says, well, how can this man forgive sins? And Jesus says, oh, it's a lot easier for me to make this man stand up than it is for me to just say, forgive him. Uh, And so he validates his word, his promise to forgive him by this wonderful work of healing the paralytic man. And I believe this man gets gloriously born again. I mean, he gets saved through and through. You say, how do you know that? Because his life begins to display fruits of salvation. Well, we don't know anything about him except what's taken place in this passage. And yet, here's a man wholly surrendered to God's word. Here's what Jesus says. I say unto thee, arise. Notice in verse 25. Uh, and immediately he rose up. Jesus said, arise. Okay, he rose up. What does that mean? That means he's starting to obey God's Word. Immediately, he stood up. Now, I can say this, if I had been a man confined to this bed for any length of time, standing up would be the obvious thing for me to do. 
being able to feel the power of my legs. My dad preaches a sermon, I think it's out of Acts chapter 4, about the man at the beautiful gate. And he begins to tell how the blood began to course from the waist down to the hips, down to the knees, and he felt tingles that he's never felt before. And it's really powerful. I think this man felt sensations that he's never felt before. So he wanted to stand up. It just so happens that God's will, the will of Jesus, was that he stand up. And so he stands up. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus says in verse 24, Arise, here's what He says too, Take up thy couch. If I was the man, I'd say, i got bigger fish to fry than be carrying my bed everywhere. These four men are perfectly capable of doing this. They did it in here, they can do it out of here. But Jesus says, no, I want you to take up your couch. You pick it up. And in this we find a surrendered life. The man's willing to submit to God's Word. A lot of Christians want to get saved and then just ride the easy roller coaster on their way to heaven. Jesus says, how about you come unto me, deny yourself, and pick up your cross? We're all carrying our couches. We're all carrying our crosses. This is part of the work of God in our life. We surrender to Him by saying, Lord, we're not able to save ourselves. We're not worthy to save ourselves. Would you save me? He says, yeah, come unto me, all that are uh, weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Jesus says, here, I've got a burden for you to bear, but my burden is easy and my, 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 my burdens are light, but, but you have a burden to bear. Jesus says, okay, arise. The man arises. Jesus says, all right, take up thy couch. Notice what he says uh, next. And go into thine house. What does the man do in verse 25? And he departed to his own house. Maybe the man wanted to stick around. Maybe he wanted to stay around to listen to the teaching. Seeing all these doctors of the law that have showed up and all the Pharisees. Maybe the man said, well, the party's not over. Why don't I just stay here and listen to what you have to say? Jesus says, no, I don't want you here. I want you at your house. And the man, regardless of what his own will was, began to go to his house. Now, I think this is very much akin to what happens in Luke chapter 8, where the maniac of Gadara says to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you want me to go. And he says, I want you to go to your house. And I want you to tell what great things God has done in your life, in your house today. I think that's what Jesus is telling him here to do. Take what I've given you and share it with your house. And by the way, that's the pattern of God in the Bible, is that fathers would get saved and their whole household. Father, you're the greatest evangelist in your house that your house will ever see. You're the preacher that your children will listen to the most. Why don't you stand up and make sure that all your family is saved? And so, arise, what did he do? Well, he arose. Uh, Take up thy couch. What did he do? He took up his couch. Uh, Go to thy house. What did he do? Well, he went home. I like this one. Fourthly, notice what he does. Jesus didn't tell him to do this. But this is just a natural byproduct of being a child of God. He departed to his own house, glorifying God. Now he's not doing that out of obedience. He's doing that out of gratitude. Jesus didn't make him do that. That just happened naturally. You know, the Bible says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, because He hath redeemed us from the hand of the enemy. It's a natural thing for the child of God to want to stand up on the rooftop and on the mountaintop to say, I love my Jesus because my Jesus first loved me. And He's rejoicing and glorifying God. Today we come to a remarkable passage of Scripture. 
One that teaches us of the very depths of God's forgiveness to us. But I'm afraid in this Christian culture in which we live, people get distracted by the rivers. The river of religion. The river of their exposure to Christianity. You see, most people's perception and understanding of Christianity is that which they have seen in others' lives. What if everybody that, is ever, that you've ever been exposed to in Christianity has been a sham and a fake? You could come on your own volition, meet Jesus where He is, and let Jesus have His work in your life. Apart from your granddaddy, and apart from your daddy, and apart from your mama, let Jesus do His work in your own life. But we get so distracted by the rivers. You know the number one reason people don't want to come to church? Well, there's a bunch of hypocrites there. Hey, there's a bunch of hypocrites in this church if I get my story right. There's always been hypocrites, but don't let the rivers distract you. Oh, there's always rivers. But when you come to look over into the real message of God, what you find is a grand canyon full of forgiveness for you. This is forgiveness for the redemption of sins. In Him we have our forgiveness. It's not anything we've earned. It's not anything we could do on our own. It is God forgiving us simply by asking it. And, And the passage makes very clear, this man's faith saved him. You can underline it, you can circle it in verse 20. When Jesus saw their faith, He said, Thy sins be forgiven thee. Faith is the thing that saves us. If we'll come to God and say, Lord, I am a sinner, I am undone before you. If you'll forgive me of my sins, you promise to do so. And you promise that where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And if you'll save me today, I will put my faith in you. That's the forgiveness of the redemption of sins. But every once in a while, Christian, we need daily forgiveness. Not in the sense that we have not been forgiven already for our sins, but in this sense, for the Christian, forgiveness is restoration unto God. Meaning when we've trespassed against Him, sin has always alienated His people from God. And there's this great gulf fixed between us and God, and that is filled with our sin. And I'm so thankful that no matter how big we feel our sin or how big we feel that our sin is, God's grand canyon of forgiveness swallows it all up and says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our sins from us. Isaiah puts it like this, I, even I, blot out thy transgressions, not for your sake, but for mine own sake, so that He might have fellowship with you. Christian, you need daily forgiveness, but there is no sin too great. And there is no habit that you have formed so long that God is not willing and able to forgive you of. But who is able to forgive sins? Jesus Christ. Not just the great healer, but the great redeemer of our soul.